Welcome to Under the Blanket with your host, Baba Here Love. And here we are in the here and now. This is it. And we're under Miraji's blanket, deep within his heart. And I have a special guest today, Danny Goldberg, the author of uh, one of my top favorite books, In Search of the Lost Chord, about 1967 and the hippie idea. And I just want to say about the book, uh, I listened to it on audio, and I just really loved it. And I think it was uh, it was so applicable to modern times, to what we're going through now. And I feel that there is a very profound message from the 60s uh, revolution, so to speak. So, Danny, if you could talk a little bit about your book, and, and especially, what is a hippie? Huh. Well, it's very nice to talk to you. And... Um... You know, I think the word hippie is a mixed blessing. I, um, I'm of that generation. I graduated from high school in 1967, and that was part of my fascination with the period was it had such an impact on me as a teenager. But the word itself, you know, was kind of a media creation as much as anything, and it, it became uh, drained of, of its inner meaning very quickly because of the way it was used in sitcoms and you know, the emphasis on fashion, tie-dye, or, you know, hippie jargon, like, hey, man, you know, come over to my crib, you know, and things like that. And, uh, and, and it got uncoupled from the energy that really hit, that I remembered and was inspired by. And so, you know, the, the idea of the book was to just try to recreate in a granular way what was going on in 1967. It was such a big year in my life, but I also think it was the year that was the, the apex of the counterculture before the darkness of 68 took over. 68, you have the assassinations and the disturbances outside the Democratic Convention and a lot of other things. And, and a lot of history, when you see CNN things on the 60s or other things like that, focus on 68 and kind of gloss over uh, the, the, that earlier innocent period when, when, when um, peace and love were not used ironically, but were really part of a shared conversation that a few million of us had to try to figure out a different way of being in the world. There were a lot of different clashing and harm harmonizing influences all at the same time. Uh, obviously, the war in Vietnam was raging, and there was an anti-war movement that was uh, that was a mass movement. Every every uh, uh, male. I think up to the age of 35 was uh, susceptible to the draft and um, and there were, uh, you know, uh, people being killed every week that were Americans, as well as a far greater number of Vietnam Vietnamese being killed. Uh, parallel to that, there was the uh, civil rights movement, which was, uh, you know, uh, still uh, still raging. Uh, there had been legislation passed uh, finally as a result of the efforts of the movement, Dr. King, as well as the legacy of John Kennedy and the legislative sophistication of Lyndon Johnson. So the Civil Rights Bill and the Voting Rights Bill had been passed. But the, you know, the, the effects of uh, hundreds of years of slavery and 100 years of Jim Crow were not going to be wiped out just by a couple of laws being passed, even though those laws did make things better. They certainly didn't, quote unquote, fix the problem of the legacy of slavery. Uh, Dr. King was still alive. Uh, he was uh, he had turned against the war. Uh, he was um, isolated from the mainstream civil rights movement who 
didn't want to uh, alienate President Johnson, and he was also alienated from younger black radicals who looked to Malcolm X as their hero and who didn't believe in his philosophy of nonviolence. But uh, Dr. King's last, uh, you know, to me, he's one of the great towering figures of that uh, period, even though he'd become famous in the 50s. He was a mystic as well as a civil rights leader. He was he was deeply spiritual being. If you listen to his sermons, uh, it's very, very consistent with uh, reading Ramdas or 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 Ramakrishna or or or, or any any uh, spiritual um, thought leader uh, over the over the centuries. And um, uh, then then the, the the third element uh, was psychedelics, which had emerged uh, earlier in the 60s. Um, after you know, it's pretty well known. You know, obviously it was discovered in the late 40s, but it was uh, it was when uh, Richard Alpert, who later becomes Ram Dass, and Tim Leary, as Harvard professors, started um, experimenting with with psychedelics. That it became uh, within a pretty short amount of time a mass phenomenon, and suddenly instead of a few dozen people in some laboratory condition taking psychedelics, millions of people were. We're, we're taking it. And some of us had mystical experiences that made us uh, question uh, the kind of materialistic frame that we'd uh, grown up in. Uh, then there was the um, parallel to that and intertwined with that uh, was was uh, uh, an interest in uh, Eastern spirituality. Uh, you know, the, the U.S. Uh, and the West uh, was divided between uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition, and a lot of people had found whatever church or synagogue they grew up around not to fulfill them spiritually. There were people that did get deep spiritual connection with Christianity and Judaism, but I was not one of them. I was brought up in a secular Jewish household, kind of worshipped the intellect, honored Jewish traditions, but but it, it wasn't a mystical sense of the cosmos, of, of what the true meaning of existence is, and, and who we are separate and apart from our minds and bodies and so on. And, uh, and, um, and some people had abusive experiences in conventional religion. Uh, and, then, and then the dominant Western religion then as now was materialism, and the idea that, that religion was kind of this ethical backdrop that you would occasionally tune into and a tradition that your families may have been part of, but that didn't really uh, govern your day-to-day -day life the way the quest for uh, material things and external recognition did. And that level of materialism, you know, it surged in America in the 1950s and early 60s. It was a time of great economic prosperity, which shone a light on a spiritual vacuum that many of us uh, had. So, Eastern religions didn't have the baggage or the karma of our parents or grandparents. And uh, it seemed like every week there was somebody else from India coming over. And some of them developed uh, large followings. Uh, you know, uh, Ram Dass, of course, gets his name later in 1967. He, he, he felt limited by psychedelics, met uh, Maharaji Neem Karoli Baba and, and, and came back within a year or two and started lecturing, and those lectures composed the essence of the book uh, Be Here Now. So, But he was not the only one. There was a tremendous surge of interest in Buddhism, and, and one of the main reasons why there was this surge of influence, besides the use of psychedelics, was the, the role of music, which to me is the fifth strand 
of, 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 of the 60s culture that I remember so affectionately. Uh, and it was a time when um, uh, technology had changed. Stereo was now a new tool for musicians. There were these new radio stations that were playing entire albums, not just hit singles. And there was a generation of musicians uh, that came in the wake of the explosion of success that the Beatles had that were uh, painting on a much wider canvas and speaking very deeply to many of us at a, at a time when conventional show business didn't. Uh, and the Beatles became interested in Eastern spirituality. I mean, I first heard about a lot of uh, uh, Hindu ideas and names like the name Krishna from, uh, from George Harrison and John Lennon because they included them in some songs starting with the Revolver album. Uh, George Harrison had learned to play the sitar, and that was first introduced from Ravi Shankar, I think. He certainly took lessons from Ravi Shankar, uh, and and uh, that emerged on the Rubber Soul album. And so um, uh, rock and roll uh, often, you know, was in an explosive uh, period. Uh, uh, groups like uh, 1967 in particular was the year of the first release of an album by The Doors, the Jefferson Airplane's second album, but the first with Grace Slick. Grateful Dead's first album, Velvet Underground's first album, uh, Buffalo Springfield, Sly and Family Stone. Uh, it was a, a rich uh, period, and it was the year that the Beatles put out their most uh, well-remembered record, Sgt. Pepper. So the combination of all of these things were in the external world, and a lot of uh, people were just trying to define uh, a life that where, where um, agape, the idea of love uh, of everyone, was at its center. It wasn't an organizing principle. It didn't create new structures in the society. It didn't really create a new politics. And it didn't really create a new religion. But it created a shared a consciousness, which I think informed the 50 years uh, some since then. Certainly the environmental movement is a byproduct of it. Uh, most of the people who were the pioneers in Silicon Valley, people like Steve Jobs, who created Apple, uh, was deeply affected by uh, by uh, that period, he took psychedelics. He went to India to try to meet Maharaji and didn't uh, do so. And of course, he named his company after the Beatles record company, Apple. Um, and uh, I think in the political realm, the 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 um, questioning of, of conventional post-war capitalism and the national security state gave rise to today's figures like Bernie Sanders and that wing of the Democratic Party. So I think that the, the, the influences reverberated, but the external symbols became passe almost immediately. So what I just wanted to explore was what was the essence behind the hippie thing, get behind the tie-dye, behind the uh, fashions, the love beads, the cliches of what was the motivation, uh, because that's what inspired me. And I enjoyed rediscovering it and tried to document it in as much detail as I could in a few hundred pages. Yeah, that, that it was beautiful. I felt like literally Doc Brown with his DeLorean found me. And I took uh, a DeLorean time machine back to 1967, especially to the event that I felt was the core center that you sort of worked the book around, the human being yeah. in uh, San Francisco, which was uh, a gathering of the tribes, they called it. And the detail you go in to what led up to that, the effects of it on the culture and all that sort of stuff. I felt like I was there. And it's funny because I'm sort of like, I try to live on that those hippie values, carry on the message of be here now, 
and I feel that I was there in a past life or something. I have uh, vivid memories from back then, and it was like, help me deal with some of those karmic issues that come up for me. So uh, about the human being, now I'd like you to go into a little bit about that event, because I felt it was really essential to the message you were trying to convey in the book. Thank you. Well, I started the book there. I said that there were so many things going on, but if I could pick one place to start and time travel, it was there. I, I didn't get to go to the BN. I was in high school in New York and had a hard enough time getting into the city on weekends without my parents uh, freaking out. And uh, uh, so I, um, I did take uh, psychedelics in high school, but it was a secret thing. And I, I, I wasn't in San Francisco, but San Francisco was where the hippie idea came from. It, 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 the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood was a, was a neighborhood in, in, the, in San Francisco that was uh, low rents. It's an interracial neighborhood with low rents and bordered part of Golden Gate Park, which is, I think, one of the biggest parks in America. And uh, starting in 65, a bunch of artists gravitated there. And, um, uh, and, and uh, you, you know, a lot of the uh, fashions and language that were associated with hippie culture emerged in 65 and 66. In this very, very small neighborhood where maybe a few thousand people were the so-called uh, hippies. And, um, you know, uh, it, 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 a number of musicians moved there, too, and including all of the members of the Grateful Dead, the Jefferson Airplane and Janis Joplin's group, uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company being the most famous ones. And they did a lot of uh, free concerts. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, psychedelics were plentiful. Uh, there were there were uh, early Acid dealers were idealistic people who thought they were bringing uh, peace and love to the world. They weren't uh, the kind of uh, harsh uh, dope dealers that uh, later emerged. And um, and uh, at a certain point, uh, there was a, um, a publication created in San Francisco called the San Francisco Oracle. And it lasted for 18 months from kind of starting in the middle of 66. And the editors of the Oracle were really committed mystics. If you read over those issues, they're available in kind of facsimile edition. You can get it through eBay or whatever. I, I spent a lot of time rereading the Oracle when I was writing uh, the, the, the book. It was very much the mystical idea of the 60s as distinguished from the politically radical idea that was parallel at, at that time. And the editors and Richard Alpert, later Ram Dass, uh, came up with the idea to do what they called a gathering of the tribes. And the reason it was tribes, plural, is because there were these different people that were all questioning society coming from different angles. One was the uh, the political radicals, many of whom lived across the Bay in Berkeley, who'd been deeply involved with Vietnam War protests and questioning capitalism, and uh, were not particularly mystical, but they were questioning materialism, and they were the same age and shared a lot of the same musical tastes. Uh, and they were a tribe, so to speak. There were the, there were the uh, psychedelic uh, uh, devotees. There were, there were also um, within, within Haight-Ashbury, there were different uh, points of view. Some of them were people like the people who published the Oracle, who had uh, little businesses. And then there were the diggers who were a radical theater group, a member of whom and a th chief spokesperson for was a Peter Coyote, who's still alive today. You hear his voice narrating a lot of the Ken's Burns specials, and he's a really brilliant, interesting guy who himself has written two very interesting books about the counterculture. 
and who was kind enough to speak to me for the book. And the diggers were fiercely critical and judgmental of anybody that made any money. They didn't like organized politics. They were really had an anarchistic view, but they had influence within Haight-Ashbury. So the idea that, that was to bring everybody together uh, to see what is this counterculture. And up until uh, January of 67, when the B-in occurred, I think the largest gathering, uh, which mostly revolved around these bands, these concerts, was four or 5,000 people. And at the, uh, when they announced this event um, for January of 67, um, uh, it was in Golden Gate Park. It's a vast uh, park. And it ended up being, I think, 35,000 people came, which was like eight or nine times as many is it ever gathered? And it was the moment when the national media and the people in the anti-war movement and the psychedelics movement and rock and roll all realized how large an audience there was for this uh, radical vision of a counterculture. And it was sort of the tipping point in terms of the hippie thing going from being uh, an insular small subculture in a couple of neighborhoods to becoming a global phenomenon. And, um, they had an actual program. Other be-ins and events that would happen later often didn't have speakers or music. They just wanted people to kind of interact with each other to literally be together. But for the human being in San Francisco that launched this cycle, they had a number of bands. The Grateful Dead played, of course. They were fixtures at all of these things. And Allen Ginsberg sort of played the central role as a master of ceremonies. And, and he, to me, along with Dr. King, is the towering figure of the, of the 60s. He, he, he had obviously been this great visionary of the 1950s, one of the two or three founders of the so-called Beatnik movement. He had introduced his poem Howl in San Francisco in 1955. And, uh, but of that group, he was the one who also embraced the next generation's counterculture and became friends with the Beatles and took acid with Richard Alpert and with Ken Kesey and, and who, who, who was able to walk into all of the different worlds of the counterculture in that way. So uh, in addition to that um, event being so seminal for what we think of as the hippie era, uh, Allen Ginsberg himself to me becomes one of the key figures in it. There are dozens and dozens of individual people. I mean, the 60s didn't have leaders in any conventional sense. It had a lot of different enclaves. People argued with each other. People had different ideas about what was important. But uh, if there was one person who, who kind of encompassed all of it, it was Ginsburg. Yeah, I really got that from the book. Ginsburg seemed to go from, you know, the political radical, the black power, the civil rights, the the counterculture hippies and all of it just going to all those different communities. And that was amazing to me that he was like, how did he be on all those places at once? Did he have a double, you know? Um, <laughs> exactly. It's incredible. And, and in England also, I mean, there was an event, you, you know, the hippie idea, even though other parts of the world, like say England, for example, uh, the British government did not join the American government in the war in Vietnam. They had a labor a prime minister, Harold Wilson, who wanted no part of it, who knew it was bullshit. And, uh, and yet, and then nor did they have a civil rights movement like we did, because even though the old British Empire was involved with the slave trade, there weren't actually slaves in England. Uh, but uh, 
And so they didn't, although they have racism in England and it's been a problem, it, it doesn't have the dimension, the gothic dimension of the legacy of racism in America. So those profoundly political issues were not part of uh, British 60s. You know, and one of the people who's a friend of mine who I spoke to for the book, Andrew Lou Goldham, was the manager and the producer of the Rolling Stones for the first many years of their career. And, and you know, he was remarking on how much more political the American 60s were than the British 60s. Yet this idea of a new consciousness of both the music, psychedelics, and trying to reinvent the way societies are organized and a, and a focus on creativity and love uh, in at least equal measures materialism was this deep uh, connection between uh, England and, and America. And there came to be an event uh, later in 67 at the Roundhouse, which is this sort of 3,000 seat theater in London where uh, many counterculture intellectuals spoke. And at the last minute, they realized they needed to add some voices from this American counterculture. And so Allen Ginsberg and Stokely Carmichael uh, and Emmett Grogan were all on a panel together. Now, Emmett Grogan was the other principal leader of the Diggers and was deeply cynical about all counterculture things, except what the Diggers did. Very, uh, In fact, his uh, speech was he made this speech to the um, to the assembled intellectuals there about the need for revolution. Everyone cheered, and then he said to them, by the way, that's an English translation of a speech that Hitler made to the Reichstag in the 30s. He was always doing these kind of commentaries to try to burst the bubbles of pretension, but still be an advocate for an even what he thought more radical counterculture. Carmichael had coined the phrase uh, black power uh, was a fierce critic of Dr. King, ended up moving to uh, Africa and changing his uh, name, and um, uh, had contempt, which he articulated for what he felt were the sort of mindlessness of hippies. And, but then Allen spoke and was somehow able to encompass a respect for the radicalism of the other two without walking away from his own respect for the young people in America who were attracted to the uh, hippie ideas. And, and Carmichael and Grogan both embraced him personally because they trusted him so much, his integrity, his purity, his legacy as a poet and as a visionary. And I don't think there's any other human being that, that could have combined uh, all, of those, uh, all, of those, um, all, of, all of those people into, a, uh, in, into respecting them. So yeah, he was he was amazing. You, you, you're right. He reappears at the at the Vietnam marches. He appears at the acid trips. He appears at concerts. He appears in academia. He appears uh, in uh, spiritual circles with Hindu, uh, you know, uh, leaders like the Hare Krishna people. Uh, you know, uh, he, he's a one of a kind uh, character. Uh, but there were many very interesting characters at the time. And I, I just through individuals, you get a sense of what the atmospherics were. And then to me, the goal is what can we take from that in our lives now? It's not about singing a particular song or uttering a particular slogan. It's about trying to find a place in ourselves that can love, as Ramdas always tells us, and with his guru told him, that can love everybody, which is not so easy to do when there are people who have political views that you don't like or who don't like you, but that's the gig, right? That's what we're supposed to do is try to love everybody. And one of the ways of doing that is to me to look at inspirational figures like Dr. King and Allen Ginsberg and emulate them.
Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I feel the message that ultimately comes out of that time period is to love everyone and to work at that at least. And as far as the music goes that you cover in there, uh, like the book title, In Search of the Lost Chord, some people, my listeners might not know, is an album from the Moody Blues. So I had, uh, we're running uh, short on time. We're going to have to wrap it up. So I figured a good uh, final question for you would be, uh, as far as music for 1967, what three songs would sum up the spirit of 1967? Well, certainly Get Together by the Youngbloods is one of them. You know, uh, people would make fun of it later on, but it's a, I love that song. Uh, it was originally recorded by the Jefferson Airplane, but the hit version that came out in 67 was the Youngbloods version. I would say um, White Rabbit by the Jefferson Airplane, that, that song is still in commercials today. It's a song about LSD, clearly using Alice in Wonderland as a metaphor for tripping, and uh, it's one of the most enduring songs uh, ever. And... Um, uh, you know, I'm a great fan of the Donovan album, Sunshine Superman. There were so many great records that came out, but I think that uh, that song and that album combined kind of some of the hippie idea with some of the hard edge of, of rock and roll. Uh, two of the guys that later formed Led Zeppelin, Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones, uh, play on it. So I wasn't prepared to name three songs, but that's fun because those were the three that just popped into my head. I'd say that it was a great uh, selection. And this has been Under the Blanket with your host, Baba Love and Danny Goldberg, author of In Search of the Lost Chord, uh, 1967 and the Hippie Idea. And uh, Danny will send us off with a message for maybe a hippie out there that's, say, a modern-day hippie. Go to fish shows, go to festivals, read Be Here Now, get into that sort of life. What message do we have to someone, someone today that's trying to sort of learn from that time period and live that sort of life? Well, these things are not about the externals. They're about the internals. So I just think uh, try to find your own path to love. For some people, it's a religion. Uh, I find meditation vital. Uh, other people can get it from nature. Other people can get it from service, from helping others. But find something inside yourself that's deeper than just whatever your thoughts are the last 24 hours, whoever hurt your feelings, whatever your money issues are, whatever your political anger it may be, whatever your, and, and try to go as deeply as possible into that question that Ramana Maharshi asked us to ask ourselves, uh, who am I? And to the extent that you can go there, you'll get messages from yourself that'll tell you what to do. Yeah, that is beautiful. That is a beautiful way to send us off. And I thank you for uh, joining me on the podcast. God bless. Later. All right. Bye, everybody. Peace and love.